Well, aren't you thankful you didn't have to do the sermon passage reading this morning? That's what you get for being Joseph this morning, and I'm thankful he read that. But we're starting our new sermon series this morning in the Gospel of Matthew, and I am so excited because Matthew is my favorite book of the Bible. I've told people before, if I could only have one book of the Bible for the rest of my life, it would be Matthew. And so I'm really excited to start this book with you, and we're going to be in it for most of the next year. And Matthew has an interesting theme. Each each gospel writer kind of has their own theme. And, And Matthew, more than the other gospel writers, focuses on Jesus being the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He focuses on Jesus being the king and explaining what the kingdom of God actually is and what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, and he starts this beautiful, wonderful gospel with a long list of names. And listen, I'm not oblivious, okay? I know some people think I am. I'm not oblivious. I know that genealogies aren't that fun. I know that if 99% of us were starting to read through the New Testament, and you know you got to start with Matthew, you read verse 1, and you're like, all right, this is cool, and then you see a long list of names that look foreign to you, what do you do, church? You skip right over it, right? Like, I'm not oblivious to that. I get it. I know it. But I think there are good reasons that we don't need to skip it, and we actually need to take time to consider what it has to say. Because after all, this is the inspired Word of God, is it not? And God saw fit to put it in His Word, did He not? So I don't think we should skip it. And in fact, I think we're, we're probably living in a time when we can understand the fascination with genealogies, aren't we? It seems like one of the most popular things for people to do in our time is to research their family history. They want to know who their ancestors are. That's why tests like 23andMe and websites like Ancestry.com are so popular. It seems like everybody wants to know who they are and where they come from. And in many ways, knowing a person's family history helps us to understand the person themselves better, doesn't it? And so when we read this genealogy of Jesus, his family history, we can better understand who Jesus actually is. And not only that, but we can learn what the Bible is actually seeking to communicate to us today through this genealogy. So why is this genealogy here? Why on earth is this the very first thing you read when you open up the New Testament? Why, when every inclination of our being, when we start reading the New Testament, when every inclination tells us just skip over it, don't worry about all those names, why should we take the time to slow down and consider it? Well, it's because this genealogy is seeking to answer the question that people asked about Jesus and wondered about him his entire earthly life and ministry. You remember when Jesus was being tempted by Satan. Satan consistently questioned Jesus' identity. What did he say? He said, if you are the Son of God, then do this. You remember when Jesus was on a boat with his disciples and there's a great storm at the sea and, and it was raging and all Jesus did was say, peace, be still. And he calmed the storm. Everything just ceased. It was calm. Do you remember what his disciples said? They looked at him and they said, what sort of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Maybe you remember when Jesus healed a paralytic by simply telling him, your sins are forgiven. 
And the religious leaders who were looking on this event were asking a question in their heart. And the Bible tells us the question they were asking is, who has the authority to forgive sins but God alone? Maybe you remember when Jesus entered Jerusalem on Holy Week and and the crowds were waving palm branches and shouting Hosea. The Bible tells us the city was asking a question. The question the city was asking was, who is this? Even on the very last day of Jesus' earthly life, when he stood before Pilate, Pilate asked him a very pointed question. He said, are you the Christ? You see, all throughout Jesus' life and ministry, everybody wanted to know the answer to one question and one question only. Who is Jesus? That's the question we want to consider this morning. Who is Jesus? Now, that doesn't seem profound to you. It's not. I'm not trying to be. (laughs) It might seem like a simple question to you. but, But just consider how people in our world answer this question today. You ask an atheist, who is Jesus? They'll say, well, he's the religious figure of Christianity. You ask a historian, who is Jesus? They'll say he was a a Jew who lived in the first century in the Middle East. If you ask uh, uh, philosophers, who is Jesus? They'll say he was a wise moral teacher. All of those things are true, but they're not the full picture, are they? And so what Matthew is doing here by including this genealogy is he wants to give us a full answer to the question, Who is Jesus? And the very first thing that he's going to tell us about Jesus is that Jesus is the beginning of God's new creation. Look with me at the first part of verse 1 there. If you have your Bibles, Matthew 1.1, the first phrase says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Matthew starts his gospel in one of the most beautiful, creative in theological ways possible. He does this throughout his gospel. But here's the problem. He is so creative that his creativity is pretty easy to miss, right? Uh, I fall into this trap a lot with sarcasm because there's a, a, a very fine line between being like overly sarcastic and people thinking you're dumb. And I, I tend to walk that line a good bit where people often can't tell if I'm really sarcastic or just maybe dumb. You know, uh, sarcasm's easy to miss that way. Well, the same thing is true with Matthew's creativity. He is so creative that his creativity is easy to miss, especially in the English here, because with this very first phrase, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Matthew is making a huge theological point. And I want you to stay with me here, church, because I want you to think about this. Because the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God, it's actually God making this point through Matthew. The very first thing that God Himself wants us to know about His one and only Son is that Jesus is the beginning of God's new creation. Now, you're probably wondering, Pastor... Where are you getting that from? (laughs) Are we we reading the same Bible here? Where are you getting that from? Well, that's where the creativity comes in. Because in the Greek, what this actually says is Biblos Geneseus Yesu Christu. Now, you might not be able to read Greek, but I'm going to show you why this is pretty cool in just a a minute. But but Biblos Geneseus Yesu Christu. The book of the Genesis. Not generations, not genealogy. The book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. 
And, and this isn't a Greek lesson, but, but the importance of this phrase comes from the fact that this exact phrase, Biblos Geneseus, only occurs one other time in all of Scripture. Now, again, you might be sitting there going, Pastor, why, why is that impressive? Well, I'll tell you why. Think about the amount of genealogies in the Bible. <laughs> Think about the amount of lists in the Bible of names. I mean, we're about to conclude our two-year study of Genesis. That book is filled with genealogies and lists of names. I mean, you think about the book of Numbers. When's the last time you read Numbers, anybody? Whole bunch of names in there. You think about the book of Joshua. You think about Ezra, Nehemiah, First and Second Chronicles. There's a whole lot of list of names in the Bible, and yet this exact phrase only occurs one other time. And it's at an important time in Scripture. So, so do me a favor, go back with me all the way to the beginning of creation and the Bible. We read Genesis 1 and 2, and what does the Bible tell us? Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that everything was good, that God created everything and everything was good. And so Genesis 1 and 2 paint this picture of a perfect world. But then Genesis 3 comes, and where do we read? We read about the introduction of a new character, the serpent, that ancient enemy who deceived Adam and Eve into sinning. And so Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They sinned against God. And at that point, they invited sin and death into the world, as we read during our scripture reading time this morning. And so not only is humanity affected by sin, we're put at enmity with God. We're no longer friends of God. We have no relationship with God. We're condemned by sin. And the Bible tells us even creation itself is affected by sin. You get to the end of Genesis 3, and it's a picture of a world gone wrong, isn't it? But there's a, there's a bit of hope in Genesis 3 as well, isn't there? Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God made a promise to His people. He, he promised that there was going to be an offspring who would come from the woman. Who would come and crush the head of the serpent. It, it was a promise that there would be a descendant from the woman who would rescue and redeem humanity. Who would restore God's created order to its original design. And so yes, Genesis 3 is a picture of a world gone wrong, but there's a bit of hope there. And then you turn to Genesis 4, and what do we read? Genesis 4, we see that man's vertical relationship with God is not just destroyed by sin, but man's horizontal relationship with each other is destroyed by sin as well, isn't it? Because what do we read about in Genesis chapter 4? Brother against brother, right? Cain kills his brother Abel. And Cain proves that he's not the promised offspring of the woman. Abel is not the promised offspring of the woman. His life ends very short. And so by the time you read Genesis 1-4, through you have this picture of a world gone wrong. A people created in the image of God who have distorted and ruined that image entirely. You have a creation that is just affected by sin. You have people at enmity with God. You have man against God, man against man. And all of this stems from one person. Who, church? Adam. You read the very beginning of the Bible. You come to Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. And you read, Biblos Geneseus Adam. The book of the Genesis of Adam. So, so don't miss that significance here. Here is the man responsible for sin. 
Here's the one who let sin into the world. Here's the one who brought sin into the world. Here's the one who brought death into the world. Here's the one who is passing that sin along to everybody who comes after him. Genesis 5.1. Here is Adam. The book of the Genesis of Adam and a list of names of all those who come after him. The Old Testament literally begins with human failure and divine promise. Now, every first century Jew knew the Old Testament well, didn't they? They would have known where this phrase occurs. They would have known it only occurs one time in their entire Bible. And then they read the New Testament. And what is the very first thing they read in the New Testament? Biblos, Geneseus, not Adam, Jesus Christ. Oh, don't miss this point, church. It's it's very good. It's very significant. Matthew is saying here with this one simple phrase, Jesus is the new Adam. He is the beginning of God's new creation. We've had the book of the genealogy of Adam. Now we have the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Biblos, Geneseus, Jesus Christ. God is doing something new in Jesus He's saying that this is the promised seed of the woman. This is the one who was to come. This is the one who's going to undo sin's curse. This is the one who's going to redeem and restore humanity. This is the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. This is the redeemer of the world. He has finally come. And he has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And we get all this, not just even from that first phrase, but from the fact that Matthew calls him Jesus Christ. Because keep in mind, church, I know this is missed on us. We're overly familiar, which we are with a lot of the Gospels. But keep in mind that Christ is not Jesus' last name, okay? (laughs) That's not the way that worked. You know, you didn't just go around using that as a last name. It's a title. In the Greek, Christ means anointed one. It means Messiah. Matthew is saying the one who has come to usher in a new age, he's finally here. He's finally come. The one that we've been waiting for. The one who will deliver us from sin's curse. The one who will restore the created order. He has come. God is doing something new in Jesus. He is the Christ. So the very first thing that Matthew does when he's answering this question, who is Jesus? He wants us to know that Jesus is the promised restorer and redeemer of the world. Jesus is the promised restorer and redeemer of the world. You see, when you read that first phrase, the the word that I want you to hold on to, the word that I want you to, to keep in mind is restoration. And how much do we need that today, church? You look around our world today, And the main thought that comes to your mind is, what is wrong with this place? I mean, you hear about literally failed abortions where babies who who were not killed as they were supposed to be killed are literally left on an operating table to die alone. And you wonder, what's wrong with this place? You hear about a growing movement of adults who are wanting to normalize pedophilia, wanting us to accept their perversity. And you hear about that and you go, what is wrong with this world today? I mean, you you hear about young children being exposed to and subjected to drag queen story hour. And the question that comes to mind is, 
What is wrong with this place? You hear about human trafficking victims, mass shootings, senseless killings, corrupt governments, indoctrination, injustice, racism. You simply just turn on the news and you cannot help but wonder what is wrong with this place? Well, church, the answer is sin. All of these things that I've just mentioned, they come from sin. Sin is what is wrong with this world today. And sin stems from one person. It was brought into the world by one person, Adam. And it was passed down to everybody after that. But praise the Lord, Matthew is saying here, there is a solution. The solution has come and His name is Jesus. He is here. He is the solution to the problem of sin in our world today. He is the restorer and the redeemer of the world and we will only find restoration in Him. So if you want to see change in our world today, if you want to see restoration in our world today, then listen church, listen to me here. We need to be serious about introducing people to the solution to sin's problem, do we not? We need to be serious about introducing people to Jesus. We need to have a passion for sharing the Gospel with others and showing them that there is hope for restoration in this world today. We need to be passionate about ministering to the hurting and the broken of our world. We need to be the hands and feet of Jesus in our world. Because listen, no one else is going to be. That is the responsibility of the church So when when the world encounters Jesus, they encounter restoration. And so it's our job to introduce them to Jesus. Amen, church? Listen, the same is true for the church today as well. The church today, hear me on this, this might rub some people wrong. The church today does not need more programs. The church needs more Jesus. The church today cannot be focused and waste time on things that don't matter and are not worth our time. Amen? There is no place for bickering about little issues that don't matter when there's an entire world who doesn't know Jesus, who are dying and going to spend all of eternity in hell. Why would we waste our time with these other things that don't matter? The kingdom of God must be built, and it's built by making disciples of Jesus. Listen, any church that is hurting... Any church that is struggling, I want them to know there is hope for restoration. And it's not found in some program. It's not found in some book. It's not found by inviting someone to come and give a speech at your church. It is found in Jesus. He is the hope of restoration for the church today. And not only that, I want you to understand it's true for individuals as well. Because here's what I know. I know that there are many people here today who come here broken and hurting. There are many people who come here today plagued by sin. There are many people here this morning who are struggling in so many areas of their lives and what they are longing for deep in the innermost part of their beings is restoration. God, I want restoration. I want to be restored. I don't want to be hurting. I don't want to be broken. I don't want to be struggling with sin like I am today. I want and need restoration. And listen, the world promises that kind of restoration in all sorts of things, do they not? You can find restoration in self-help and all these other outlets. And listen, those things might bring temporary relief. But they cannot bring lasting restoration. 
Only Jesus can do that. He is our restoration as individuals today. And here's what Jesus tells us in the book of Revelation. Behold, I am making all things new. That's happening now. That is present tense. Jesus is making all things new now. He is the restorer and the redeemer of our world. Praise God that is who He is. But this is the second thing that Matthew wants to tell us about who Jesus is. Notice that that second phrase there. He's saying that Jesus is the ruler that we need. Notice what he says. He says that Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the son of David. And again, this isn't just lineage. This is a title. Because remember back with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. God makes a covenant with David. This is what he says. God makes a covenant with David. He promises that David is going to have an offspring. David is going to have a son who is going to establish an everlasting kingdom. Who is going to sit on a throne for all of eternity, and he is never going to be removed from that throne. He is going to be called the son of David, but most importantly, he would be called the son of God. Now when David heard that, he rejoiced and praised God for such a promise. When the people of Israel heard that, you know what they did? They hung all their hopes on that promise of the son of David who was to come. When the people of Israel were invaded by Assyria, they hoped for the son of David to come and rescue them. When the people of Israel were captured by the Babylonians and led away into exile, they hoped for the son of David to come and deliver them. When they finally did return to the land and they were opposed on all sides, they hoped for the son of David to come and intervene for them. When they finally did resettle the land, but they remained under harsh Roman jurisdiction. They hoped for the Son of God or the Son of David to come and free them, to give them freedom. When the people of Israel heard that phrase, Son of David, they were filled with hope. And it wasn't just true for the, the nation as a whole, it was true for individuals. You see this all throughout the Gospels. I, there are so many favorite stories I have from the Gospels, and, and they all pretty much revolve around this phrase. Think about old blind Bartimaeus. Y'all remember him? A blind beggar at the gates, can't see anything. He hears that Jesus is passing by, and what does he say? Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. He was blind, but even he could see that Jesus was the hope of his people. Maybe you remember the Canaanite woman who came to Jesus and she said, my daughter is oppressed by a demon. What did she say to Jesus? She said, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Even as a Canaanite, she recognized that Jesus was her daughter's only hope. Maybe you remember when Jesus entered into Jerusalem at the beginning of Holy Week, the crowds were having palm branches and they were waving them and they were shouting, Hosanna to who, church? To the Son of David. It was a, a shout of praise. It was a shout of hope and rejoicing. They were saying, here is the one who was promised to come and deliver his people. You see, the point is very simple. When Matthew tells us that Jesus is the son of David, he's saying that Jesus is the hope of God's people. Praise God for that. Jesus is the hope of God's people. When you hear that phrase, son of David, the word I want you to hold on to is hope. 
That's what I want to come to mind. And you might ask yourself, well, pastor, why does this matter today? Well, think about how often we feel hopeless in our world today. It's pretty easy, isn't it? The world we live in, pretty easy to feel hopeless. When everything in our life feels like it's beyond our control and out of our hands. When it feels like we can't actually do anything to bring about any real change at all. Think about how hopeless you feel when the world seems frightening and uncertain. And that happens a lot, doesn't it? You hear about the potential for nuclear war. You hear about government corruption that's so out of hand it seems like it can't be stopped. You, you hear about political parties that cannot be trusted. You hear about Christian persecution and martyrdom. You see the world doing everything they can to be rid of the church today. And what we need in those times is hope. What we need in those times is to remember that Jesus is the Son of David and He is seated on the throne today. When we hear that there are countries, listen to me church, literally giving out medals of honor for killing Christians. In North Korea, you kill a Christian, you get a medal of honor. When we hear about the potential for war with China or Russia or North Korea or Iran, when we hear that Christians are being hunted down like animals and killed for no other reason than the fact that they love and worship Jesus, when we are ostracized by our culture, when the governments are trying their best to overreach and control the church, when many governments are still trying to shut the church down, the question that we start asking ourselves is, how can the church survive this? How can the church go on? How can we withstand this amount of persecution? How can we withstand this amount of corruption? What hope is there for the church today in a world like this? Well, listen to me. Your hope, Christian, is in the fact that Jesus is the Son of David. He is the ruler that this world needs. He is the sovereign authority over this world. He is seated on the throne forever. He is ruling over the kingdom for all eternity. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And the scepter will not depart from Judah. He is the head of the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus Christ gives His people hope because He is the Son of David. He will have the victory. He is the hope of God's people. That's exactly what we need to remember today. Matthew tells us one final thing about who Jesus is. Not only is He the beginning of God's new creation, not only is He the hope of God's people, but he tells us that Jesus is the blessing of the nations. Notice that last phrase there. The son of Abraham. The son of Abraham. Now, the first phrase signifies restoration. The, the second one signifies hope. This one signifies blessing. Because it's a fulfillment. Again, think back to Genesis chapter 12 and verses 2-3. through three. This is what God said to Abraham. He made him a promise. He said, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now clearly, this is a continuation of Genesis 3.15, isn't it? God is saying that Abraham is going to have an offspring as well. 
And it would not be through Abraham and every one of his descendants that the nations would be blessed. It would be through one descendant. There was going to be one offspring who would bring blessing to the nations. And Matthew is saying here, that is Jesus. He is the promised offspring of Abraham who would bring about blessing to the nations. Now, if that's not encouraging enough, I want you to notice here, Matthew does something else that's really encouraging, but was completely unheard of at the time. In fact, he actually does two things. So so first and foremost, he includes the names of women in his genealogy. Did you catch that when Joseph was reading? Women. Now, here's why this is surprising for everybody who says that God and the Bible are sexist. No one did this at the time. No one in ancient culture included the names of women in genealogies. Only men made it into official genealogies. But here, Matthew includes women. And not only that, the other thing that he does that's very surprising is he includes the names of, um, how should we say this, the less desirable family members. Is that a, is that a good way to say it? The, you know, the family members that you kind of want to put some distance between the two of you, you got some of those, maybe a crazy uncle, and you're like, well, we are related technically, but just, you, you know, they're not, you're not quick to claim those, those particular relatives, right? We get those names in here. Um, it's kind of like when I was going through high school, when teachers would, would see that my last name was Chapman, they got all excited, and they would go, hey, are you related to Rebecca and Nick? And I was like, of course I am. I am, actually. (laughs) That's my older sister and older brother. But Rebecca was a straight-A student. She ended up being valedictorian of her class. And Nick, my older brother, is about as sweet and agreeable as anyone you could ever hope to meet, okay? So teachers loved my older siblings. And so I was very quick to claim them. Well, yes, I am. I am the brother of Rebecca and Nick. You should give me special treatment. But then I went through high school (laughs) And let's just say that I was not um, a good student. I was a troublemaker. I was constantly getting in trouble. I was constantly getting detention. I was, you know, being called out by teachers and all that kind of stuff. Just pretty much miserable for every teacher I ever had. And so by the time my younger sister came through the same high school, guess what? The teachers were no longer asking the question, are you related to Rebecca and Nick? The first thing they would say to my sister is, you better tell me right now if you are in any way, even by marriage, related to Alex Chapman. Let's just say she was not too quick to claim me as her own, right? She wanted to put some distance between the two of us. I was the family member you wanted to exclude. And Jesus had a whole bunch of those. I mean, just consider, just for a second, consider a few of these names that are included here. You've got Jacob, the liar, cheater, deceiver who constantly played favorites with his family and got his family in trouble because of it. You have Judah who put his daughter-in-law in a very tragic situation and then impregnated her. Then you have Tamar who is the daughter-in-law of Judah who dressed up like a prostitute and tricked him into sleeping with her and impregnating her. She's included here. You have Ruth. Or or, or before we get to Ruth, you have Rahab, who was a notorious and well-known prostitute. Yeah, Jesus has those in his family history. You have Ruth, who was an outsider, a Gentile. She was a a Moabitess from Moab. And remember, Moab, that was the, the hated enemies of the people of Israel. They were to have nothing to do with them. And yet Ruth is included here. You've got David, 
who literally impregnated another man's wife and then had that man killed in order to try to cover up his own sin. You've got Solomon, wise man that he was, with 700 wives and 300 concubines. But he was wise. So <laughs> You've got Rehoboam, who was largely responsible for the division of the kingdom of Israel. You even have mention of some of the most evil kings in all of biblical history. Joram, Ahaz, and Ammon. I mean, this genealogy is full of surprises. But it's amazing. Because in this genealogy, you've got Israelites, Gentiles, men, women, kings, sinners, criminals, scoundrels, and even the most ordinary of people, like Joseph and Mary. Who were they? Joseph was just your everyday carpenter. He was just a manual labor carpenter. And Mary was a teenage, yes, we'll get into more of that next week, teenage girl. They were not remarkable in any way according to worldly standards, and yet they're included here. Because even they, as ordinary as they were, were chosen by God to be the earthly parents of Jesus. You see, this is amazing. I want you not to miss this here. We have all these different types of people included. All these surprises. Why, why are they included? Why not just pick the good people, right? <laughs> And just include those names. Why go out of your way to include all of these messed up and messy people? Well, it's because the Bible's making a point here. It's the point I want you to understand. There's a place for you in God's family. Anybody encouraged by that this morning? I know that I am. You read this list of people and you go, man, if they can make it in there, there might be a chance for me. And that's the whole point. There's a place for you and God's family. This is the beauty of Jesus being the son of Abraham. If he had just been a son of Israel, guess what? He would have only come for the people of Israel. If he had just been a son of kings and royalty, he would have only come for kings and royalty. If he had just been the son of perfect people, guess what? We're all in trouble. Because he would have only come for perfect people. But as it is, he is the son of Abraham. So Jesus came for the nations. He came for the people of Israel. He came for the Gentiles. He came for the unremarkable. He came for the outcasts, the despised, the sinners, the unrighteous. Because He came from people such as these, listen to me, He came for people such as these. And that's good news for us today. No matter where you find yourself this morning, no matter what walk of life you come from, no matter your family of origin, no matter the mistakes of your past or the sins that you still struggle with, there is a place for you in God's family. Jesus is the blessing of the nations. You see, when you look at this genealogy, the overarching message that Matthew wants us to understand, when it comes to this question of, of who is Jesus, he wants us to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. You want to summarize Jesus? There's not a good way to do it, but that's a pretty good one there. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. The Bible tells us all of the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, He is the fulfillment, which means He is the beginning of God's new creation, the restorer and the redeemer of the world. He is the son of David, the hope 
of God's people. He is the Son of Abraham. The blessing of the nations who welcomes people from all walks of life into His family. He is the long-awaited Messiah and He has come and the weary world rejoices. So church, let us look to Him for our renewal and restoration today. Let us put aside fear and anxiety that comes about from living in a world like this and actually turn to Him and rest in His divine power and authority because He is seated on the throne forever. I don't have to fear anything. It's in the hands of Jesus, the Messiah. Let us take this blessing of salvation to the nations. That's what we're called to do, right? That's what our church wants to do. We exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus. Our whole aim for the next year is to build the kingdom of God by making disciples of Jesus. You think this list of names is long. I want to add more list of names to it. How about you? You want to add more names to this? Let's take this blessing of salvation to the world and let's make heaven crowded. Amen? Let's pray.